0: Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode of guests on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's episode is Yoneman Nordhagen. Uh, Most recently, Yoneman released Where the Water Tastes Like Wine, uh, which is a brilliant game about about stories and about America and about the way we share stories and how stories uh, mutate um, and change over time. As you can imagine, for such a kind of narrative-heavy game, there was a ton of Really brilliant writers involved. Like I'm um, probably one of the best kind of collections of writers, including several former guests on the show, like uh, Cara Ellison, Geeta Jackson, Jolie Manzel. Um, plus, it stars Sting as a wolf, which is amazing and it's beautiful. Like I really uh, urge everyone to to check it out. It's a, it's a really fun, interesting, clever, unique game. Um, too many too many superlatives. Well, you can be you can be the judge it's also a a brilliant chat like uh yonaman um started off in kind of game testing qa testing and then went on to work on bioshock 2 and minerva's dad and and was kind of there at the formation of fulbright entertainment and worked on gone home um and he's sort of seen the highs and lows of indie development and he's been very kind of open and honest on twitter and social media and stuff so he was a very engaging um um and kind of forthright with, with his thoughts and opinions and the reality of making games in the 21st century. Uh, really terrific chat. It's always good to speak to someone that's kind of clearly got a, a passion and a point of view in, uh, in video games. I am certain that you will enjoy it. And of course, if you do enjoy it, um, please, you know, whatever app you use, uh, rate and review it. And especially on iTunes, rate and review the podcast. Really uh, helps grow the show, helps new people discover it and is, uh, is greatly appreciated. Um, or just, you know, share it around, tell people on social media. Um, and just, you know, I, I want more people to hear the show because these are really good chats, I think. And I've noticed that a lot more recently, a lot of people, more people have been sharing it. So thanks so much to all of you if you really like the show there's a patreon page which is patreon.com forward slash checkpoints any and all donations are very gratefully received and help make the show as good as it possibly can be um what else oh yeah admin stuff so if you'd like to get in touch for whatever reason you can email it's CheckpointsPodcast at gmail.com or it's at checkpoint show on twitter or it's checkpoints podcast on facebook it's very important to have consistent branding um thanks as always for downloading the show i really hope you enjoy it please do subscribe i'll be back next week as always with a new episode and a new guest but until then let's get on with the show formal introduction for the the sake of ceremony so uh welcome to the show thank you so much for coming on if you don't mind would you introduce yourself
1: uh yeah absolutely um my name is Janaman Nordhagen, and uh, I'm most recently the uh, lead developer of Where the Water Tastes Like Wine.
0: And how is, uh, how is your Monday going so far? I mean, it's pretty early for you in San Francisco.
1: It is, yeah. It's, it's about 10 o'clock here. It's going fine so far. You know, the couple of hours that have been up have been productive, and it's uh, beautiful weather outside, so hopefully I'll get to go out in it.
0: But Yeah. And you just move in, you mentioned you're moving, is that just within San Francisco or is there a a greater adventure afoot?
1: No, yeah, I'm actually moving to Santa Fe, New Mexico. Cool. Um, So uh, I'm packing up for that right now. Um, Yeah, Santa Fe is a little small city uh, up in the mountains of the desert uh, in in the middle of the United States. Uh, It's a place that I've visited a bunch. Um, I've never lived there before and uh, I'm moving out there, so...
0: It'll be, it's it's a big adventure I'm excited. what's uh, what's prompted that move
1: um, there are a few things uh, one is that I kind of wanted a change of pace in general uh, another is that San Francisco has gotten way too expensive uh, it's just really difficult to live here uh, especially as indie game developer and since I'm excuse me since I'm someone who can do uh, what I do from anywhere in the world it doesn't really make sense to be paying you know exorbitant google facebook uh engineer rates for an apartment while i you know while i'm making any games so
0: yeah i do like, like I, I do i love that kind of adventurous spirit like because i'm i'm a writer i could theoretically go anywhere but you know and there's so many people i know that do the same thing but very rarely do people actually follow through on that like i spoke do you know are you familiar with uh devine vega a game developer no. him and his his girlfriend started a studio called 100 rabbits and they bought a boat, and they just sail. They they have a remote studio. They just sail around. I think they're in New Zealand at the moment. Um, that's fantastic. And it's Just what, yeah, what a actually, life!
1: Heard rabbits before. That's that's amazing. Like I, I wish that I could do that. I've tried to do the like traveling as a lifestyle thing before, and I lasted about six months. And then I was like, you know what? I would really like to have
0: some stability and some yeah. like
1: friends and things like
0: that. <laughs> so, yeah. And yeah, there is that uh, the flip side of it. It's always that you know the opposite of what you have, you know, as I I do kind of romanticize that notion, but I know in reality, I would spend most of my time pretty unhappy because I I do not enjoy traveling. I like going (laughs) to places, but the actual, you know, traveling part of the journey is always just such a chore. Yeah, definitely. Um, So so I I guess this is kind of prompted then, you know, you're you're between projects, so to speak, I imagine, like, do you have, is this kind of like a, a restart to also like start a new game or start a new chapter in life or whatever?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is, you know, it's a new new location, and I'm going to be doing things differently, you know. Um, I think that uh, the indie game world is changing really quickly right now, right? And that's not news for anyone, but it's, uh, it's scary to be on the inside of that right now. And uh, I, ha- you know, I was thinking about different ways to sort of cushion myself against that and uh, you know one way would be to get out of indie games entirely uh and take a job somewhere um or you know take a job at an indie game studio or something like that um and uh another way is to move somewhere where uh i can weather that stuff more easily right where like i don't need to have uh hit games all the time to afford a a lavish san francisco lifestyle
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, you know. you, you've kind of been doing this for long enough that you you will have seen this kind of change because you're one of the the co-founders of Fulbright, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So
0: so that's like I mean, and and that was certainly Gone Home was one of the kind of uh, very much the, the flag bearers of like a new wave of of indie titles that does seem to have kind of changed in the last few years. Like in terms of there are there are relatively fewer kind of flagpole titles like that like even like Tacoma like Fulbright's follow-up
1: yeah absolutely um I mean I think that uh, there are just as many amazing games absolutely coming yeah out but there, are but the attention is just split right I mean there's there's so many games coming out that it's difficult to find those games and uh, even if they do get uh, all the attention and all the rest of it it is uh it's tough for them to find an audience for whatever reason you know I mean I think there's a lot of things that have gone into that it's not just the number of games coming yeah. out it's the way that we hear about games these days it's the way that we purchase games these days like there's a lot of different stuff that feeds into that but but yeah in general it's a lot different than 2013 when we released gone home you know it's a it's much Scarier market to
0: come out into. Absolutely, I mean, I do part of me like this. This often comes up because of the the type of developers I generally speak to tend to be sort of smaller independent developers, and the thing that I kind of keep going back to, and this is true for myself as well, like uh, because I'm a writer, and you know that's almost like um, has the sort of lowest barrier to entry. You know, you anyone can really give it a go. But then that's that's the world of books, which you know has existed and maintained for centuries you know it's just I think games haven't quite reached the kind of the the audience parity that that books have yet that you know I've got like my mum probably has a handful of favorite authors that I've never heard of and never will hear of but Uh for her kind of niche that author's kind of niche group of of fans that's fine that sustains a life you know I just wonder if we've hit that kind of level of uh, engagement with games in the, the populace I think more people maybe are making them than there is to sort of service that if you know what i mean
1: yeah i think that's probably true i also think i mean uh with with whether water Water tastes like wine um i was explicitly trying to make a game that would appeal to you know non-traditional game players and uh one one problem with that is that there isn't really a good way to reach those people right like even if you manage to somehow connect with them you have to say like Okay. First of all, you need a PC that's capable of playing games. Uh, you know, and even if your system requirements are pretty low, like, then you need to say, okay, here's what Steam is. Uh, you have to go and yeah. go onto this weird website and make an account and hook up your credit card and do all this sort of stuff. And it's just like, it's a really high barrier to entry for just people. You know, yeah, uh, who absolutely. are not the like if you if you read a book. Once every couple years or something like that, like it's still really easy for you to go onto Amazon or go into a you know a bookstore and hand over money and get a book and there's no there's nothing between you and that book. You know, uh, whereas with games we have a lot of arcane rituals and requirements, <laughs> things that you need to even begin to get involved in the hobby, and that's uh, that's tough. You know,
0: is there a way like uh, this is, if if this is completely inappropriate, like please do let me know. Because I am, I like I am a fan of games. I have nothing to do with the, the industry necessarily, but like part of me feels that isn't there a way of um, I feel really bad saying this, that like making a game as freely accessible as possible. Like for instance, like just hosting it on a website or something. Because something like whether it, was, it tastes like wine or or something like 80 Days, I feel could work perfectly on that if there was like a, a paywalled website that you can go through the game that way.
1: Yeah, and I mean, like, those used to exist, right? Yeah, uh, like all the flash
0: poles and stuff.
1: You know, yeah, all the Flash ones and, and everything like that. Um, and those certainly worked. Uh, I think that the there are a couple things there. One is that it is difficult to get people to pay for those, like all of those ones that worked on advertising revenue or, uh, you know, a, a small number of, of people purchasing a large number of games, you know, that sort of thing. Um. And Another is that they they really lent themselves to a particular style of game, you yeah. know. Like, I mean, I think that you could sit down and even have like a, uh, a four to five hour like story narrative experience at, at that kind of level, or at least it would be a lot harder to do that, right? Absolutely. Especially a free game, you know, like all the requirements that come along with that. Websites are tough for that. Um, I, I still think that there are, like, I mean, actually, the Apple App Store is probably one of the most human-accessible ways to get games. You know, I mean, uh, my parents could go on to there and purchase games and play them, you know, on their iPads or whatever, on their phones. Um, You know, that's that's one of the easiest ways to do it. Uh, But obviously that has its own problems as far as uh, getting exposure and, you know, Apple's weird setup and, you know what they consider viable subjects to make a game about and all this other stuff, right? Like it's a there's there's no
0: platform that's totally free of problems, unfortunately. Um but like does it has it kind of dimmed your interest and love of making new games? Are you still like obviously it's hard not to have your kind of as you said, you know, you make a choice about how do I proceed and how do I go on with this, but clearly you've made a decision that you you have things that you still want to do so you'll just figure out a better way of doing them in future
1: yeah that's right i think that the main thing right now is finding uh some way to maintain stability like uh for me and everybody else i think in the in the games world it's like how do you do that do you as a company you know uh take on work that is outside of you know just making your games do you uh, i don't know if you saw but campo santo the firewatch developers friends of mine just got acquired by Valve. Yes, I did
0: see that. It's very exciting.
1: That's a way to do it is to have a (laughs) big company come along and just float you while you make what you like. Uh, Zach Barth has that
0: as well. Actually, I spoke to him recently and he has like a parent company essentially that just lets him make whatever he wants.
1: Right. Exactly. And there's, there's actually a few little companies that have that, that have like some wealthy company out there just, just supporting them for whatever reason that makes sense. Uh, Financially, um, and I think, you know, that's, that's totally valid, but the, the tricky part is that you can't really depend on make, just making good games to, you know, provide that stability anymore. So you yeah. need some kind of extra thing to, to give you that stability and maybe it's like a day job, you know, there are people like, uh, uh, Robert Yang, right, who makes all these really fascinating, uh boundary pushing game absolutely and he's able to do that because he's not depending on them to sell he has you know he's a a professor uh and has an academic uh gig going on that that supports him in his day-to-day and his games can then be a little bit more risky potentially yeah. you know and we, we and, talked
0: about that exact thing on the show like that that's part of why he's able that's why he does why he does because he can like he is in a unique position where he's able to just make things that are boundary pushing and interesting for the sake of it, and not having to rely on you know the cash side of it.
1: Right, and I think that's wonderful. Like I think you know we each kind of need to find our ways of doing that uh,
0: because it looks like
1: selling games is not a uh, risk-free strategy anymore. <laughs> oh man!
0: Controls. Well, let's uh, let's not dwell on that too much. Let's uh, let's think of good times and inspirations. So, uh, yonaman if you can remember. What was your very first experience of a video game?
1: Yeah, so uh, I was I've I've been trying to think of this. I don't know the actual game of it uh, name of it, but in elementary school, um, I I went to to elementary school in the '80s uh, to give you an idea of the time frame here. But like all the classrooms had uh, you know the old Apple IIes in them, yeah. uh, which were amazing platforms for all sorts of stuff. Uh, and they also had games on them, which was, of course, our favorite part. Uh, and so I remember playing some kind of typing, maybe spelling game uh, that involved some little robot figure running across something, and if you typed the word correctly, you'd jump up and fly over this obstacle, and if not, then you'd crash and and die in a cloud of pixels or whatever. Um, and that is, I that I think that's the earliest thing that I remember playing was was doing that in probably kindergarten uh, on an Apple IIe. So. And was
0: that in San Francisco? Have you always been based in San Francisco?
1: No, I grew up in Colorado, actually, in a small town in the mountains called Snowmass Village. Um, and so uh, that was where that was where I did that.
0: <laughs> so was that kind of um, a kind of a pivotal thing of like, oh my God, here? Like, I'm not sure exactly how old you are. Like, was it like here are computer games and this is like a brand new thing or were you just kind of always peripherally aware that this was a thing and yeah, just no, here's a fun thing I can do in school
1: five or something like that so you know most of the world was new to me at that yeah, time absolutely and games were just another thing that was there you know it was uh it wasn't it wasn't a huge part of my life at that point but you know they've, they've always kind of been in in the background I guess
0: And so then as you got older, like, how did your relationship with games grow? Like, were you a Nintendo kid? Did you just carry on playing on computers? Like, what was your your path?
1: I did have a, uh, I I did get a a Nintendo when I was uh, probably about 10. Um, I remember I had to, my parents were sort of, they weren't, Super opposed to video game systems, but they were also like, we are not going to buy you a video game system that seems like a uh, kind of a ridiculous thing to spend money on, so you can get one if you buy it yourself. And so I, I sold newspapers uh, and and eventually earned enough money to buy myself the Nintendo bundle that came with, you know, Super Mario Brothers and Death Hunt. Uh, yeah, so I had that, but that's pretty much my only console experience growing up um after after the nes i was became entirely a pc games kid basically as well as things like you know board games tabletop games role playing stuff like that but uh but it was all pc games uh was that just necessity
0: was, or was that like i mean you kind of you just said oh i've got i, got, I had nintendo but it doesn't seem to have a, a particular impact on you necessarily
1: yeah i mean I, I definitely remember those games fondly but you know it was because I had to buy all the games for it myself, I didn't have a whole lot of them. You know, it was very expensive for a for a 10-year-old kid back then to buy these, these video games. Uh, and so what, what ended up happening was uh, my family got, like, a Mac Plus, uh, which was one of the early Macintoshes, and we started getting shareware games for that, you know, and I kind of discovered that I loved the complexity of games that you could play on the computer uh you know you would have these strategy games you would have things like sim city um uh i had one called warlords that was about uh i don't know it was it was medieval fantasy uh army like an rts sort of thing except it was uh, not of course real time uh like a strategy game basically and um things like that that i were were nothing like what I associated with console games, which were very, you know, action heavy sort of lots of button press sort of stuff, uh, and much less this kind of deep, long uh, I don't know, strategic sort of game. Absolutely. Um, And then uh, when I was a little bit older, uh, I got a secondhand DOS computer given to me by an uncle, and that sort of started me down my own path of learning to use this weird thing you know command line stuff and everything like that um learning how to upgrade it you know i bought new hardware for it so i could turn it into a better games machine you know um i bought and otherwise acquired my own video games for it you know (laughs) uh passing floppies between kids at school and things like that um and eventually got it hooked up to the internet uh, which of course was a revelation in itself you know right about i don't know like 1995 90, 94 maybe i don't know very early internet days uh which of course changed everything so and yeah.
0: you mentioned these kind of like role-playing games and these more kind of deep kind of pc games which is is definitely true of the time but like socially i guess those aren't as conducive especially at that age for like a bunch of kids to play together maybe i'm wrong like were were games something that you kind of used as a, a social currency did you make friends through games or was it just a thing you were into on your own
1: yeah not a whole lot um it was a thing i was into on my own i had friends who played games and we would talk about them you know like uh especially you know that warlords one that i mentioned you know that was something you could play uh like hot seat uh multiplayer so we'd play that uh as kids um i i remember uh later on when i was a teenager i got a copy of uh, marathon um and i used to like haul my family's giant macintosh computer over to a friend's house so we could play uh you know competitive marathon against Amazing. each other and like that but in general um the the games that i socialized with other kids with were things like dungeons and dragons or um you know uh the Battletech miniatures game or, uh, you know, things like that, like role-playing games, tabletop games, um, more in-person social sort of stuff.
0: Yeah. Were you a a DM as a kid?
1: I was, yeah, I was a DM. I was also, you know, I mean, we we all sort of traded that off. It wasn't... It was just sort of a... I think nowadays I appreciate, you know, that you need a very particular set of skills to be a good DM, but, you know... We were kids, uh, Didn't we didn't care as much, so, yeah.
0: <laughs> and so w- once you started sort of tinkering around with computers yourself, like, was that, did you start making your own games at that point, or was that only when you started kind of getting the internet and stuff? Did, did it feel like a thing that you could do?
1: Yeah, I, I did. Uh, I was doing programming pretty early on. I had like a basic uh, book, and I was making, you know, things out of that, and I... Tried to do some games uh, early on in that, and I had no idea what I was doing, so they they very quickly fell apart. Um, but I, you know, I was trying at that at that early stage, and then actually the very first time that I really got deep into game development was uh, on the internet. Um, I started playing uh, what's called uh, it was it's a mud. Um, I don't know if you're yes. familiar with, it or not, but yeah, okay. So yes, back in the day, uh, there were these text-based uh, MMOs, basically, multiplayer games. Uh, they were all all text, and you would sort of uh, connect to them over Telnet and type in commands and, you know, this whole thing. And I got um, excuse me, really big into one in particular called Discworld Mud. Um, it's, you know, based on the Terry Pratchett books. Yeah. Um, and I played that for... For years and years, way, way too much. Um, and then eventually uh, started coding for it and learned how to write the language that this MUD was written in and, you know, uh, started making new spells for players and new items and places to run around in and stuff like that. And so that was the thing that very much pulled me into game development as a as a hobby and eventual career.
0: That's, that's really interesting. The, the I, Like, I had never heard of Muds until I started doing this show, and, like, quite early on, like, I think it was episode 16 or 17, I spoke with uh, Meg Janth who made uh, 80 Days, oh. one of the writers of 80 Days, and yeah, she definitely. she fully introduced me to this world, and she very similar to you. It, like, that was her life for a couple of years. That was her interest in games. And it just yep. blew my mind, because they're so... Like I don't understand how that whole kind of like I've been playing games so as a kid that whole kind of layer of video games just completely passed me by. Like I I don't know how I wouldn't have discovered them but they just sound so just so ahead of their time you know I couldn't believe that these kind of games existed when I was you know a teenager.
1: Oh yeah I know it's amazing to look back at this and like look at the features that these games had you know like Discworld had uh, a player crafting system it had like player-run elections and housing that you could own and, you know, all of this stuff that was, like, the, you know, the first MMOs didn't have this. I don't think any MMO, like, lives up to that sort of stuff. Uh, You know, it had different languages. You could learn different languages, and uh, depending on your level of understanding, you may or may not be able to read everything that someone types in that language, you know, sort of thing. And it's... the, The feature set was so amazingly complex because it was all done in text and so you could you had a lot of power for what you yeah absolutely you know uh and it, it's just yeah it's amazing to see that that stuff and they're still going on like they're still around these days um i every once in a while i log on to Discworld just to see that it's still ticking along you know i can't really play it anymore i think that's another part of it too is that uh these games were very esoteric you know i mean even for the time it's it, you know you have to be the kind of person who likes wrestling with parsers and you know typing things and reading a lot of text and you know all of that sort of stuff and uh i just don't have that anymore i think
0: uh <laughs> but yeah i love that they still exist though and i did, like i'd be curious to see like who who plays those like if it is like as, as you said like it requires a lot of, of time commitment like most mmos i wonder if it's like a generational thing you know so if it's still like mostly a bunch of kind of teenagers and early 20 somethings playing muds these days
1: yeah i'm not sure
0: actually that would be really interesting to look into uh i don't know and so like as you got older and you you know you had this experience did it feel like was there a moment when you thought, well, this is, I can just do this. I can do this as a job. This seems like a thing I can do. Like, was that something that happened quite young or were you much older?
1: It was actually, it was, uh, well, I was in college, you know, um, I was doing a computer science program and I, there was like a computer club at, at my university. And we would all, our, the main thing that we did honestly was get together and do LAN parties, you know, and just play, play video games. And, uh, we would also we were all also really interested in developing video games, you know, because we were all computer science students and yeah. we loved these things. And so, you know, uh, we we kind of learned a lot about that and kind of did it as hobby sort of stuff. And then somewhere in there, I guess it just clicked for me that like I could do this as a career. You know, I even fairly late though in my university career, I was. Uh, pretty much like I was applying for internships, I was kind of headed on a path towards um, doing your more conventional software development, you know, just going to work for a big Silicon Valley company and doing whatever, you know, sort of stuff. Um, And I think that part of what happened was that uh, this is, I was graduating uh, shortly after the first dot-com bubble burst. Uh, Okay. And so all those jobs kind of got wiped out uh, right before i came out into the job market and so at that point i kind of was thinking well it's going to be really difficult to get any kind of job i might as well try and get you know a job in games which i, I believe i'll enjoy um and so at that point that became my goal and i sort of worked entirely towards uh getting a games job
0: and so where did you actually no i'm gonna go back for a second because sure you know in this kind of like university period there's often um well not often but you know people can drift away from games for whatever reason they decide to reinvent themselves go into a new place why not like did you ever have a point in your life where games kind of just sort of fell away for a while for whatever reason
2: uh
1: not entirely ever um my social circle especially in university was very focused around games actually i guess you know the time that that would have most happened would be the last few years of high school. Um, A lot of the people that I had been playing games with, you know, the the Dungeons and Dragons and, you know, the the computer games and things like that, um, sort of moved away from that themselves. And that left me without a group of people, you know, to do that sort of thing with. Um, I also had a lot of other stuff going on, as one does, you know, in that stage of life. And so that that period of my life was one in which I don't didn't play a whole lot of games, except for the fact that this mod was, you know, taking over a huge percentage of my life, you know, to yeah. detriment to my social and life. <laughs> and school, school. Hey, they're they're
0: social. They, that counts.
1: They are. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: So, so where did you uh, end up then when you decided you were going to try and look for a game job? Like, was there anywhere specific you were hoping for?
1: I mean, uh, I like. Yes, there were, like, just the big places that made games, right? It was, like, Blizzard would be an amazing place to work for, you know, but that's everybody's dream job at the time was that sort of that sort of thing. Uh, and so I, I knew enough to know that it would be very difficult for someone directly out of college with no experience at all to land a job at one of these, these big places. Um, so what I did was I... I uh, Sort of just bounced around. Um, I was making my own games, uh, just sort of. At the time, there wasn't an as much of an indie game scene, especially not one that I was familiar with. But um, what what you would do is develop a game so that you had uh, portfolio material, basically. Um, so that's what I was doing: is I was you know writing a game engine from the ground up and making uh, this silly little, um, uh, Space Invaders-like, you know, 3D game, um, and, uh, I started going to GDC and things like that, which at the time was in San Jose, uh, instead of San Francisco, um, and, uh, you know, I would go and pass out my resumes and everything like that, and, uh, after, I think it was the first GDC that I went to after college, um, I, you know, went around all the job booths and passed out all my, res- my resumes and everything like that. And there was not a lot of excitement about a, you know, a junior inexperienced developer trying to come in. Um, and I met this uh, recruiter, though, who was like, oh, you know what you should do is try and get a job in QA first. It's a good way to break into the industry. Uh, here's my card, you know. And she, you know, was, of course, just trying to recruit, you know, poor, desperate folks to uh, <laughs> to uh, work cheaply for QA stuff. Um, but I did, and I interviewed at uh, Sony um, and got a job there doing uh, uh, what's called third-party QA. So for Sony and Microsoft and Nintendo, they all have, um, when, you, when developers submit a game to them, they put it through their own QA pass that's not really focused on how good the game is or anything like that but it's more about is this going to crash your playstation you know is this right. going to destroy something uh things like that you know um does it yeah does it do really things that will damage our brand as a console manufacturer so.
0: that seems more fun than kind of the irregular qa testing though that seems like less like this sisyphean task that's going to ruin a game for you it's more like okay well just play it and see if anything properly breaks but we're not going to be right, exactly. jumping a hundred times in this corner to see if we can clip through the scenery or anything
1: yeah i think it was a lot more fun i mean first of all we got these games when they were theoretically ready to be uh, out on the store shelves so they were mostly done you know they, they were supposed to be done when we got them and uh we would only get them for like a week maybe two weeks at a time which you know i mean, even if you're playing it for 40 hours a day for a week it still is a lot of time to get sick of a pretty good game but it's a lot less time than playing it for you know three years uh so uh yeah it was it was a pretty nice experience
0: um was it quite exciting because you get new stuff you know
1: yeah it was it was an exciting it was an exciting time definitely i felt like i was in the industry for the first time you know i was uh working for sony one of the big ones you know um and, uh, you know, I eventually got hired on full-time as a QA lead there um, and uh, also got to transfer internally within Sony to actually be a programmer um, for their research and development department. So it was really good. It, it actually worked out just the way that the uh, woman <laughs> trying to yeah. hustle me at CDC promised it would. Uh, I got
0: my foot in the door and everything, so it, it, did, it did work. What sort of games did you, did you test, if you can remember?
1: Yeah, so I was actually in the um, the online division of testing uh, at Sony. So uh, this was the PS2 era, and the network adapter had basically come out not too long before. So uh, you know, it was it was a doing online play on a console was a pretty new thing, and yeah. uh, uh, we the big thing that the the big genre of games that did online play were sports games, actually. Um, so, and this was during an era before the current consolidation of sports games. Um, you know, there was like EA got exclusive license and things like that at one point. Yeah. But for that, uh, EA would make their own, uh, football game. Uh, you know, they'd make their own basketball game. Uh, they'd make their own soccer game. um, and then uh, so would Midway and 2K and uh, I can't remember what the other big one was. Sony had an internal one. Like, there were a bunch of them, basically. And because those games had to come out at the start of the sports season for each of these sports, that would be just our busiest time because you'd have, you know, five baseball games all trying to get through the queue at the same <laughs> time. And they all... Uh, were multiplayer and they would all use like you know uh, the PS2 had that thing where you could connect up to 8 controllers to a single uh, Playstation or actually maybe it was up to 16 controllers I think it was 8 anyway um, and so you'd have like 8 controllers on 2 different PS2s that were playing against each other uh, so you'd have 16 people total trying to play a basketball game and it was uh, it was wild you know, that sounds uh, kind of fun it was, it was. It was a lot of fun. I feel like and, you know. were
0: probably some of the few people that actually took full advantage of all of those uh, capabilities.
1: I <laughs> yeah, could not imagine another group of people who would somehow get uh, eight people together on a single console and have eight friends on a different console all playing the same basketball game together, you know? Yeah,
0: uh, and that was it, just mythic to me at the time. I knew it was possible, yeah. but I didn't know anyone. Actually, I think I can't remember who I spoke to, which is terrible, but someone I interviewed on the show, like that was their thing, they just, they loved the SOCOM online, like, that was their, their full jam, but just no, oh, yeah. it, was, it was mythic yeah. to me, I never never knew anyone that played it.
1: Yeah, SOCOM was another big one that we that we tested, that was, you know, one of the Sony first party uh, yeah uh, FPS games that was was online, and people got very serious about that game, there are a whole community, or we're a whole community of like, super hardcore SOCOM players, where like that would be the game that they'd play. You know, they'd own a PlayStation and SOCOM and that was that. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah, it, it, they were it was a pretty seemed like a pretty serious subculture. Like the people who were into that were very into the U.S. military and, you know, guns and things like that. It was a little bit uh, definitely a, a, a different world than what I was used to.
0: <laughs> oh, it was Erica LaHaye the artist huh. uh, she worked on a shredded aisle oh okay. she's an yeah, amazing for... concept artist that's fantastic wow and and she was also a big SOCOM well player, into yeah. SOCOM yeah well into SOCOM cool. so so like you mentioned this kind of you know you're deciding I can do this. this is something I can try it but you know this was while you're in university like was it were there other people that you were doing it with because one of the things I've certainly noticed from speaking to a lot of people is how How important that is you know having a community of people like i mean it's true for any industry but just to have have that shared interest and goal like was that something you kind of developed over time or were there people that you were kind of you met while working at sony that wanted to go out and make their own stuff
1: so not at sony um but what what started happening is i don't know around maybe 2000 2007 something like that um i just started becoming way more interested in the, the games that were being made kind of at the fringes both the like kind of weird experimental games that were coming out uh commercially things like uh katamari uh and uh I'm trying to think of what else like even like shadow of the colossus stuff like that like uh the things that were maybe pushing games in new directions and that led me kind of to the earliest
0: oh, that's not true because indie games have been around
1: forever but you know like uh the that that wave of yeah yeah the
0: 21st century kind of, that first of indie out stuff. Out
1: at that point you know um uh things like especially uh tale of tales you know and uh um Uh, Sorry, I'm blanking on on other things. But, you know, there were a bunch of stuff coming out at that time that were just taking totally new directions in gameplay, in thinking about, like, what games could be, like, in art styles. You know, it was was a really fascinating world. And after a while, like, those are the kind of games that I really enjoyed playing, and they were the games that interested me most to think about, like, what can games mean what can games be like we already know how to make first person shooters yeah. and uh you know third person action games and things like that but what else is there you know and, and how can i play around figuring that out you know that's what i'd like to do is, is figure out what else games
0: can be absolutely i mean and do you do you think that that was something that was just kind of awakened by that wave of games or was that something that had been sort of building because i mean I, I certainly remember like I guess around 2001 or something I started to kind of and that's probably part of my age as well I was like 21 and so I knew everything in the world and I was a big yeah. kind of evangelist like oh you don't understand games like they can do so much more this is when like Res and Ico and stuff was was coming oh, out yeah yeah I, I probably became like completely insufferable to a lot of people um but because because you know it's that the classic thing of you know like similar to like comic books and stuff it's it gets kind of a, a sort of societal association so you just end up getting really uh, militant about it. You're like no you don't understand <laughs> you grow yeah, up to understand
1: it was very much a you know games are art you know sort absolutely of heartful, uh, uh fighter for that for for a long time and and yeah um and yeah i think that's why you know i decided that 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 would be, uh, going off in my own direction was probably the, the most fruitful thing because uh, AAA companies weren't really making the sort of things that I wanted to wanted to see uh, at all in the world at that time. So.
0: And did you have like a specific game or an idea that you wanted to pursue or did you just meet the right people? Because I mean that's quite a, a bold move, you know, even when, you know, things is seemingly like a new wave that you could kind of crest on. Nevertheless, you know, it's still a risky move to say, and I'm going to go off and be an indie developer.
1: Yeah, it was absolutely, like, it was a, it was a huge risk, but it was, uh, it came at kind of the right time in my life, and then also, um, yeah, it was the right group of people, like, uh, Steve and Carla and I had all worked together at, at 2K on uh, Bioshock, and um, the, I think we were all sort of getting fed up with what what it was like working in a AAA studio, in addition to kind of the output there, you know, like that that sort of game, but also that sort of work style, you know, and not having a lot of creative control, stuff like that. And uh, I I remember that I I can't remember what exactly I said anymore, but I was I made some you know kind of like vague tweet thing uh, on on Twitter that you know was exposing my unhappiness with, you know, uh, my, my job and Steve saw it and he reached out and he was like, Hey, uh, I saw your tweet. It seems like maybe you're also excited about doing something new and different. Do you want to quit your job and move to Portland with me and make a video game? And so uh, we all sort of coalesced around, uh, around that idea of getting out of there and doing something different. Uh, we didn't have a game idea immediately but you
0: know we you all didn't have an idea immediately that that surprises me because like that sounds really exciting but then you're like oh, we didn't have any real idea what we were going to do then it's immediately yeah. terrifying
1: <laughs> we we knew some of what we wanted to do right like we knew that we were going to make something that was that played to our strengths some sort of first person uh you know something uh, in the direction of bioshock but you know we didn't know exactly what that would be like you know there was yeah. a early pitch for it was like a this abandoned mansion where your uncle and inventors robots were running around and you had to like do solve puzzles using these robots in some way to I don't know anyway uh, that sounds good but it boiled down to eventually we decided we were making gone home
0: and uh, and that yeah that happened <laughs> and did you like did you feel at the time that this is a thing that's going to be really popular and kind of, you know, change a lot of people's expectations. I mean, I'd be hard-pressed to think that you did, but maybe you did. I don't know.
1: No, I mean, it was terrifying because we were making something totally new that a lot of people who picked it up and played it were like, are you sure this is a video game? You know, like this, I'm not, this is, this is different, you know, and people liked it generally, but they were always like, well, I like it, but I'm not sure... Other people are going to like it, you know, sort of thing. Um, it was just, it was, it was a step, maybe a little bit too far for for most people. Um, so they was that was nerve wracking. Um, however, there was definitely a point when we started showing it to the press, and they were just really interested. They were like, "Wow, this is super new. This is something that we have never seen before. We are really excited to see." what this is what the story ends up being what the game ends up being like what the heck what the heck is this thing and so i think that we we began to see a lot of attention building before the game really early on so that that all that helped maybe a little bit mitigate the idea of oh my god what are we doing uh <laughs> making something totally experimental betting our life savings on uh on this weird weird idea um
0: And like, but then obviously, you know, your, your experiment was validated because it went on to be a a massive success. Like, I'm curious, like with the, you know, you talk about people saying like, is this a game? Like, this is something that's true for a lot of kind of particularly narrative driven games. So it's certainly true for Gone Home and, and Where the Water Tastes Like Wine. Like, do you, what do you think about that? Like, do you, do you think it's just a question of there's like insufficient vocabulary to discuss like what they are yet, you know? Do you feel like, okay, now this is a game and this is why, or is it just like, well, it doesn't matter really, but just it just fits yeah, into game because it's interactive?
1: Right, I think that it just, really that that question, especially at that time, came down to a kind of failure of imagination of people, I guess, that like, there was a time, uh, I don't know, uh, in the 80s and 90s and everything like that, when games, the possibility of space of games was so huge, you know, and there people were just, like, no one stopped to think, like, oh, is this a game? People would just make their weird ideas about, you know, what games could yeah. be, and in that process sort of discovered what, what worked and what didn't work for for games. And then in the maybe mid-90s to, like, mid-late 2000s, there was this huge commercialization of, of games, and that kind of narrowed people's ideas of what games could be because the same thing was being put in front of them all the time, right? Like, these big companies would only make games that uh, were relatively safe bets, you know? uh, Things that, that followed along a certain mold. And that's what people came to believe games were at that time. But, like... I don't think I don't know. I don't think Gone Home. I mean, it 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 definitely broke new ground, but in a lot of ways, it wasn't. Uh, there there could have been a time when that game was made and it wouldn't have looked out of place. you yeah, know, like it's just another things, thing. Yeah, you know things like that when when those kind of games were happening. Like you could have made this and people would just be like, oh yeah, well, that's another video game they're doing all sorts of things you know <laughs> uh, so i think i was more uh, a product of the time and the sort of consolidation of uh what you know commercialization i guess of what what games were
0: absolutely um i'm going to take a, a brief aside to ask some relatively quickfire questions but don't feel pressured sure. because they almost never are um yonaman if you had to play a game uh, against death for your own mortal soul what game are you best at Oh, wow, gosh.
1: You really raised the stakes on this one. Yeah, um,
0: really, really quickly.
1: Uh, so I uh, I used to be really good at Quake 3, weirdly, and I don't think that those skills have still carried over, but um, that, that might be something along those lines is, is probably what I'd choose. Uh, I was surprisingly good at Twitch-based, like, headshot, you know, reaction reaction games so uh there you Let, go
0: let's assume that you can play at the peak of your powers in right your life. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. okay quake 3 yeah. that's good yeah. um yeah. is there any game that's ever kind of consumed your life to the point where it's become a problem and you've had to like uninstall it and push it away
1: yeah so i mean we talked a little bit about Discworld before but i uh there was a, uh after like two years like the final two years of my high school when i was playing Discworld mud uh through those years at one point I looked back, you know, it keeps track of the number of hours you're online, right? Okay. Um You can look at that. And I looked back and discovered that, like, fully a third of my life for over those two years had been spent logged into <laughs> Squirrel Mud. And, like, you know, I wasn't that I was necessarily actively playing it all of those times, uh, but it definitely ate a lot of my time. Like, I would, I would wake up on a weekend day and just start playing and play all the way through until like three, four in the morning, you know, and, uh, then do the same thing the next day, you know, sort of thing. So it was, uh, it was definitely a problem.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's quite like, if you're going to get sucked into a game like that, that seems like quite a good one because as much as it is a time sink, there's an element of creativity to it as well. You're not just clicking buttons, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I mean it was a huge like social thing for me, absolutely, and it was mostly yeah. I was hanging out with friends. You know, it was uh, it it was a thing, but I'm sure that I would have done better in school uh, had I had I not spent that amount of time. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, are you a, a particularly competitive gamer? Have you ever been locked in a particularly fierce rivalry with anyone?
1: Uh, I mean, you know, I brought up Quake 3 before, uh, in, in university, that would be, you know, that sort of thing was, uh, what we would spend a lot of our time doing is, uh, deathmatch stuff there, um, but never really rivalry, I would say. Like, it wasn't, there was never nothing like that that I can think of, no. Uh, I don't, I'm not huge into competitive games, honestly, uh, I like... Single-player games mostly, but yeah.
0: Okay. Um, well, I, I'm fairly certain I know the answer to this, but we'll see. Uh, if you're prone to such things, what was your worst rage quit?
1: Oh gosh. Uh, wow. Um, you know, I don't, I don't rage quit uh, that often. However, I definitely do remember uh, again, Discworld. Uh, that was something like those games uh you they were very harsh on death and things like that you could especially uh you know they were versus other players sometimes you could be killed by other players and things like that and then they could rob your corpse and just loot everything you had done plus you'd lose all your experience points that you'd gain and you know things like that you could lose levels um and so i'm positive that at some point i died on this world and thought my life was over um but uh, that's the that's the only thing i, I can think
0: of okay um but, is there um a game that you go to for comfort like a chicken soup game
1: weirdly uh burnout paradise is that oh game no that's a me? good one yeah i love uh i love that game uh just i, I mean i love playing it and everything like that too but i also just like turning it on and just driving around you know and just experiencing the feel of the cars is so great, you know. Uh, just seeing the scenery, just kind of, yeah, wandering around the island and uh, and having fun.
0: Did you play the the remastered version?
1: I haven't yet. No, I'm uh, I'm planning on getting that for my PS4 once I'm all settled in my new place but my ps4 is packed up right now so
0: yeah no it's, it's that's an that's an excellent choice um well given the kind of the, the the range of emotions that video games are potentially able to portray uh, one of the rarest is still um laughter so uh yonaman what games have made you laugh uh
1: let's see uh definitely uh katamari Damacy, uh 100 percent um uh uh, West of Loathing is one that's recent that uh, I love uh, that is hilarious. Um, uh, jazz punk—I don't know if you've played jazz punk or not—but it's another. I haven't. Really I remember hearing about it though. Uh, then uh, Stanley Parable, also definitely.
0: Um, ah. Oh, so you're, just, you're just reeling these off. This is usually a, a stumper, but these are all excellent suggestions. I'm sure there are others in there, uh, but those are the ones that I can think of. Katamari is one of my favorite examples because, like, it's so. It, it can only exist in a game, you know. It's one of those things like a lot of a lot of funny games tend to be written very well, right. which is which is fine. That's fair, but Katamari. There's something about Katamari. There's just such a, like a pure slapstick to it that's just amazing.
1: Yes, absolutely. It's fantastic.
0: Um, cool. So once you kind of sort of released gone home and you know you you kind of um you see the success of that like during this sort of period and maybe like for the last few years as well like are there games that continue to kind of inspire and games that kind of stand out to you as being like oh my god this is this is amazing that would have changed your kind of perspective like they would have when you were younger
1: yeah i mean one that that has done that absolutely for me was uh kentucky route zero um that is a game that I think is—I uh, don't know—I would—I would go out on a limb and say it's probably the best game ever made. <laughs> um, but it definitely uh, blows my mind as far as just the quality of that game and what it says and what it does and uh, everything that they've done around it. You know, their interludes, yeah. all that sort of stuff. Like, it just uh, amazing
0: stuff. Um, I'm still. I've, this has come up a bunch of times on the show, and I've yet to play it because I don't have a good <laughs> enough computer. But oh, th- no. I'm pretty sure it does come out on consoles. I keep thinking that it's meant to be out, and I keep checking. But it's yeah, the yeah, it, yeah. It's coming
1: out on Switch. I'm not sure when, uh, and and the uh, other consoles as well too. Actually, yeah, it's coming out on. Uh, I, I, but I don't know when. I know they're working
0: on it. Uh, yeah. I'm very, very much looking forward to it because because it has just been sold to me like so many times so well. It's really, really good. <laughs> and I'm, um, I'm avoided kind of like just watching a let's play or something because I'd really like to to do it myself.
1: Yeah, I think it's something that it's better experienced
0: yourself, certainly. Yeah. Um,
1: another one in a totally different direction would be Dwarf Fortress. Uh, that's another of my favorite games, uh, and is just mind blowing as far as uh, what it manages to do, and the as a programmer and as you know, sort of a a person who knows game technology, the direction that it pushes that is also really fascinating. Like. Mostly, when we talk and think about technology and games, uh, you know, we're we're talking about graphics because that was yeah. where the big companies, you know, have chosen to push all of their effort, and we have you know specialized hardware for that in our computers and everything like that. And Dwarf Fortress entirely issues graphics uh, in favor of really deep simulation and AI work, so that it looks like just a collection of weird random letters on your screen but is driving your pc to its knees because it's you know simulating the inner life of 57 different dwarves with their own unique bodies and personalities and minds and you know all of this stuff it's it's just a phenomenal game and is wild for everything that it does like it's uh
0: yeah yeah i i'm that's what like to my uh not to my shame i'm not that ashamed about it but that is definitely a game that i love hearing about and i love reading about and it just like completely bounce off it because it's just i I find it incomprehensible to to get into i mean
1: i've played it for many 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 hours and it's still been a couple of years since i played it if i were to pick it up again I would have no idea what was going on. I would have to use a tutorial to get me through, uh, you know, the first round of feeding my dwarves or whatever. It's like it's very, yeah, it's unfortunately, a very obtuse game.
0: But it's a great sort of uh, story generator, you know. This it makes for for great reading, which yes, is which is definitely 100%. something. So, 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 what prompted you then to kind of go off and and, and make Dim Bulb yourself? Because that again, that's another seemingly quite big, risky move. Like, was there any particular reason?
1: Yeah. So I mean, um, having been a programmer for my entire games making career, um, you in that position, you know, you have you have certain things that are nice in that you're generally the highest paid group of people at uh, the company, you know, and and so on and so forth. You're kind of uh, the yeah uh, the linchpin of a lot of organizations. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, you don't get a lot of. Creative input into games. You get you get a little bit here and there. Um, in on Bioshock 2, I got to write some of the descriptions for the uh, tonics that I was implementing. You know, things like that. Uh, on Gone Home, I got to uh, come up with some features and you know have a little bit of input on the story and other things like that. Right. But but at the end of the day, your job is different and it's not a as much about the creative expression. And, you know, we were talking about how I have been seeing all these games pushing boundaries in various ways and wanting to contribute to that. And I mean, you know, obviously I I absolutely did with Gone Home, but, you know, that was not my baby, right? That was not my idea, my, you know, uh, the thing that I thought I could do. So, after Gone Home, um, I felt like that was going to be my absolute best chance in the world to make my own thing right like a financially you know got home had done well and so i had enough money to keep myself alive while i made uh my own game um and then attention wise and everything like that um i knew that you know because i had just come off of this successful game uh press and players would pay attention to whatever the next thing i did was um and so I decided like, hey, if I'm ever going to do this and I get one chance to make a game, this is my best chance and I'm going to, I'm going to do that. And so I uh, decided to, to make my own thing and try and come up with the game that only I could create, you know. And, yeah. Uh, it
0: really one. And the, again, though, like, did you have the idea for the game before you decided to do that? Or do you like, no, I'm going to go off and I'm going to, I'm going to make something and figure it out. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it was no. I did not have the game at the time. I was uh,
0: so, well. This is, this is insane.
1: Yeah, it's it's sort of weird. Like I was uh, I was traveling around uh, the world a bunch actually after gone home shipped. I would took about six months and I was just kind of wandering, uh, backpacking, you know, all over the place. Um, and so I was like. I don't know, I wasn't sure at that point what I was going to do next, you know, whether I was going to uh, keep doing stuff with Fulbright or whether I was going to do my own thing or whether I was going to go back to the world of AAA or whatever, and that trip was sort of an excuse to find that out, Um, but I think that I decided that I wanted to do my own thing and began thinking about, but what would that be, kind of in the same moment, I guess, if that makes sense, you know, like, so
0: yeah. I mean it does like it ties in I mean I, I'm I'm always searching for these neat uh, comparisons and it's almost definitely too neat but it does sort of tie in with the kind of your your love of muds, you know it's it's that kind of the the mixture of kind of programming and creativity all at the same time you know and developing stories essentially which is what you went on to to create I mean that seems to be at the heart of um with the water tastes like wine this kind of stories as a as a currency as a tool you know yeah, absolutely. 100%, definitely. And... Something <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, like, with the, the road trip, because you don't often get road trip stories, like, did, did, did games play a part in that in any way? Did you take, a, like, a PSP or a Game Boy or something that to sort of anchor you to, to video games?
1: No, not at all, actually. I didn't... Uh, I tried to... Uh, not necessarily separate myself from that, but, like, I... Uh, I wanted to... Expose myself more to the world, I guess, and also I was trying to kind of travel light and not take things that would that I would be very unhappy if they got stolen yeah. or it would need you know special power adapters for different countries that I went through or you know all of all of that sort of stuff. Um, so no game systems uh, came with me on that trip at all. I did, however, have a really interesting experience. Um, I was. I took the uh, the uh, Trans-Siberian Railway uh, oh, amazing. from from uh, Vladivostok uh, to Moscow, and um, on that trip, uh, I was in the cabin with uh, some other Russians. One of whom uh, was a like a I don't know twenty something you know um, who had his gaming laptop with him, and he was big into games. And we couldn't communicate very well because he spoke very little English, and I spoke no Russian. Um, but you know, we kind of bonded over the idea of games, and uh he brought out his laptop and he was like, Oh here, you know, why don't we uh let's you can play some games, you know, and uh he sat me down. The first thing he sat me down with was uh the South Park game, Stick of Truth. Yes. And I had never played it before and I didn't really know what I was doing, and I sort of saw him like eyeing me skeptically like are you sure you make games? Like, you're not very good at this, you know, sort of thing. Um, but then he booted up uh, Serious Sam, uh, which I had played before, and, you know, like, I, I, I have this weird skill still with Twitch-based FPS games, and, you know, I just demolished my way through a couple levels of serious sam and i saw this whole new respect in his eyes for me so uh that was my my video gaming story one of my video gaming stories at least from that that road trip
0: that's nice that's nice i do like like there is um it seems really sort of trite to say it but it's it's very true that like video games can like totally be a universal language that you know it's any sort of game really you know if you don't have that much language involved it's it can be very kind of universal help bring people together and stuff um yeah even if it is like blowing things up with shotguns (laughs) it it can be a tool for bringing people together (laughs) um so how was i guess the the process of of making it because i I guess on paper it seems like a a theoretically sort of simple thing but there was so many moving parts in it and it's such a i mean it's a really brilliant game and so kind of I feel like just from a managerial point of view, it must have been quite a quite an undertaking.
1: Yeah, I think that I didn't know what I was getting myself into when I started. Unfortunately, Um, I had an idea that this would be a pretty, like a relatively low scope game. You know that like it's something that I could make, you know, fairly easily. I was thinking like, okay, well. Uh, meeting these characters, it'll all be 2D art, and 2D art is easier to make and render than 3D art, so that's, you know, that's okay. I'm gonna have a 3D world, but it's gonna be like a sort of abstract map-like thing, so it'll be, you know, that'll, that part will be easy. This, the game will be mostly, mostly writing, it'll be, you know, uh, and, and writing is cheap and easy to produce, so uh, that'll be fine, you know, um, and then it just, uh, turning it into what I wanted it to be this thing about America and bringing on all these different writers and filling the, you know, just getting the amount of content that we needed to make uh, to fill an entire continent of, uh, of stories uh, turned out to be a lot, you know and, and also honestly finding what the game was, you know, uh, going into it and saying like, okay, well this is a game about traveling and telling stories, like that was, that was the idea that I had from the very beginning, but what does that mean like what form does that take what does how do you make that interesting and compelling for players and that took a lot of time too is finding the different ways that that stories worked and what we were trying to say about stories and folklore and and america and all of that sort of stuff
0: and one of the things and this is like a a purely kind of technical thing that i find quite interesting is like so one of the kind of central mechanics of where the Water Tastes Like Wine is that you you trade stories, you meet strangers, and then you you have picked up stories along the way, and they'll ask you for a specific type of story, which you then have to try and give to them. Like so, you have all these stories that have this kind of like genre attached to them. How how much discussion was there about what stories matched which genre? Because I feel like that's quite a tricky thing.
1: It is, yeah, and that was left entirely up to the individual writers to like sort of what we what we had was we had a big spreadsheet that tracked all the stories that were going in, and there was a graph that said like you know this percentage are funny right now, and this percentage are scary, and everything like that. And um, the idea was that people would use that to sort of balance it out, so it would be like oh we have quite enough sad stories, someone please write more funny stories, sort of. Thing. <laughs> um, and so people would try and. And aim their stories in that direction. Um, it there was a little bit of debate sometimes about like what a story would be like, um, how it how it felt, and things like that. That actually has happened more after the game has come out. Um, we uh, we were all kind of on the same page uh, reading individual stories and being like, "Oh, I see. Like this is a story about this like demon winged goat, but it's actually really about." uh, you know, the tragedy of losing this family sort of thing. Yeah. And, okay, I get it, you know, we're all on the same page there. And then the game would come out, and people, players would see that, and they'd be like, oh, uh, a demon-winged goat, this must be a scary story, you know? Of of course it is. Like, if I met this goat, I'd be terrified. That must be, you know, what, what sort of story it is. And so we kind of had to think a little bit about, uh, oh, do we need to maybe adjust some of these so they are more in line with people's expectations about what these what these stories actually are uh so we did we did fiddle with that a little bit um after after
0: release i feel like that's just that's like uh it's like a comprehension test you know it's like it's like you you failed at reading that correctly therefore you know it's it's the the equivalent of not pressing jump in time, so Mario falls <laughs> in a pit. You know, it's just no, you, you've you failed at that game mechanic. Game over.
1: Yeah, you know, and that's that's something that I'm interested in. And I actually I made like a joke tweet about this that went viral. I don't know, months and months ago. But I, you know, I said like um, it was it was something about like uh, get good at at reading comprehension <laughs> or something like that. You know, um, and I think that it's interesting. Sorry to hair this off on a tangent here, but I think it's interesting that oh, we dude. do. Look at challenge in games only along a particular axis of like dexterity, you know, uh, manual dexterity, and that's like how we look at challenge in games. And I guess there might be a little bit of strategic thinking that's allowed there as well, right? But if we look at challenge in other works of art, if we talk about a challenging film or a challenging book or something like that, we are not talking about like how difficult it is to read to the end of it or to, you know, successfully watch this movie to the end or anything like that we're talking about like how hard is this to engage with on an intellectual and emotional level right like how how much do you need to read into this and think about what the person on the other end is trying to say in order to get the most out of it and like i think that honestly that's the the axis that i'm interested in making games challenging on is that i want them to be Challenging, like in the way that a book is challenging, in the way that a movie is challenging, in the Absolutely. way that like a, a piece of art in a museum is challenging, you know. And uh, and I think that, that that conversation still isn't happening at all. Like no one has, has done that. But I would I would love to see people talk more about the the literary challenge of where the water tastes like wine. <laughs> uh, so,
0: unfortunately, yeah. it makes for a terrible esport So I right. think that's why it hasn't picked up.
1: <laughs> yes. <we can> <laughs>
0: um so so just like in the the past few years then i guess like are you still like do you still feel as excited about games like are you excited about the the future of games like do they still continue to hold a special place for you
1: yes absolutely i mean i think as an art form um i think there's a still a lot more that can be explored there and there's still a lot that i am interested in exploring um as a the flip side of that is that there's the commercial reality of making games, which, you know, as we talked about, I, as a creator, am terrified about that, and then as someone who likes to see new exciting games come out, I'm also scared that the market is going to go through a kind of contraction that makes it a lot harder to make those kind of games, and that we're going to see people experiment less, and that we're going to see players accept that sort of thing less and and so on and so forth that there may not be the room to explore there because we don't have enough support for people making experimental stuff and trying to live at the same time you know
0: yeah this is definitely a a common theme i i I spoke to uh ian baghost a a few days ago um about this very thing and and that was his kind of concern as well was that you know it's it's not just that there's not really interested in amazing games coming out there there are so many but they're just to make them to a specific level and to have that same level of like polish and success that requires money like they're just the the, the incentive isn't quite there yet i don't think yeah um exactly. but I, I i do i do like as i mentioned at the start of the show i do feel like that could just be a a generational thing you know like give it another 10 years and there'll be a much much more kind of video game literate uh kind of Job working theoretically uh, society, you know.
1: Yeah, I hope that that's true. And I, I, the thing that I worry about, I guess, is a little bit that that contraction that I talked about earlier, right, where like what games could be became defined as you know within very rigid parameters, sometime between the mid '90s and the mid '2000s, you know. And yeah. I guess I worry that if we go into a, another period of, you know, commercial. I don't know, where it's, where it's difficult to make these things commercially, that maybe people will flee the more interesting stuff and that will mean that people are literate in games, but that they have a very narrow idea of what kind of stories games can tell and what kind of experiences yeah. games can be. And I don't I'm not like a total pessimist. I don't I think that like there's enough different people out there making games, and there's enough different game experiences that are happening that we're we're going to continue to see that flourishing but i yeah. just you know it would be it would just be a lot easier to believe in that if i felt like people could make those games and survive <laughs> more easily yeah i was actually
0: yeah. i was talking to a friend of mine about this the other day and it was it, like i think one of the reasons like i i don't play as many games as i used to partly because i'm just older and i have more responsibilities and i have to do more things but the other aspect of it is um there are so many games that just like games as service that just that that's that's done it for me so like overwatch like that's that's fine i get my first person shooter fix from playing overwatch and it continues to update and it's brilliant like and i we were talking about this and i didn't know whether or not we were trying to decide whether or not that means that it just blocks out interest other interesting things from the market or whether or not because you've kind of you know here's fps's that's covered so now it's only other more interesting things that are going to kind of Rise up and and you know make you want to play them if you know what I mean. Yeah. It's wow, tricky. That's a, that's
1: a really interesting plot. I don't know, but uh, I, mean, I hope it's the latter. Obviously. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah.
0: I feel like it is though because like there's very few, like if I see a, a first-person shooter game, I'm, uh, maybe I'm just not very representative of the market or something. Like, well, I don't really want that because I'll just I'll play Overwatch and I'll get that same fix that I need, and it's reliable and it's you know it's, it, it keeps going so it's fine. Um, but who knows? Who knows? Um, I feel like quite guilty in this whole thing because I'm just uh, uh-huh. getting people to open up about like, the, the fear of job security. I'm like, I just I, I think all these games are brilliant. Thanks, everyone, for making <laughs> them. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I feel like we've covered all sorts of good stuff here. Yonaman, is there anything that kind of hasn't come up that you wanted to mention? Um, please take this opportunity or just let people know where they can find your video games and, and buy them and support good new things
1: yeah absolutely so um i mean you can find where the water tastes like wine on steam or at where the water tastes like wine.com um and you can find me the best place is probably twitter um at yonaman uh which is j-o-h-n-n-e-m-a-n-n um and uh that's about it i think
0: um it, well it's not actually because i just i just remembered um and i have to ask you this i'm sorry if it's a boring question uh, how did Don't sting know. end up in Where the Water tastes like wine yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay, so that, that is weird, right? That's bizarre. That is really um, weird. So strange to think about, but uh, what happened is that actually this was because of my publisher, uh, Good Shepherd. Um, they There was someone who worked at Good Shepherd who kind of had this connection, was at a party with Sting, and uh, pitched the game to him, and was like, hey, uh, does this sound interesting to you at all? And he was like, wow, that's that sounds like a really cool idea. I love it. You know, I'm into it. And, uh, you know, that's how that happened is he was, he was excited about the idea to the point where he would agree to do it. And also, you know, when obviously we can't really afford sting, you know, I mean, there's no way that that would work out. And so he would also do it for something that we, that would work for, for us. So that's how that happened, I guess. But I don't,
0: I don't know. <laughs>
1: it's it's so weird. It's it's. He's really was good first,
0: as well, though. Like he he doesn't. No, it's he it's, it's not jarring it. at all. He did a really good job.
1: Yeah,
0: it's it's spectacular. He's
1: he's really good. And uh, when when it was first pitched to me, uh, I was the 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 approach I kind of took was like, well, I don't know whether this will work out or not. I don't know if this is going to be worth it. I don't know if it's going to be good. But at the end of the day, like. I have to do this because it's such a good story, and it's so weird and bizarre, and I would be kicking myself if I ever looked back and said, well, I could have worked with Sting, but I didn't, you know, like, <laughs> I, I just had to take that that chance because that's what the game is about, is collecting weird experiences to so tell stories later, so
0: yeah and like do you know if he even played it like if he liked it does he does he like games i don't know i mean I know he's not like your best pal or anything play
1: a lot of games as i understand but he definitely has played this i don't know i doubt that he's played it like all the way through or anything like that but he has you know touched it and played it and you know uh agreed to be a
0: weird wolf in it so there's <laughs> that <laughs> oh that is good that's a nice a nice story to end on was that um was that fun for you on is that cool
1: this was great, yes, thank you. Excellent. Is, what, what a good conversation. Yeah, it was thanks so very much. It
2: was three days' ride right from Tulsa and route to Santa Fe. And there, beneath the blazing sun, my horse began to sway. was then I heard a thunderous sound come rising up behind. Of twelve horsemen, their course locked on the mine. White Rider, White Rider, ain't fixing for to join your faded line. White Rider, White Rider, don't come to claim me for I had my.